0: Well, the UK is close to a trade deal with Australia so Tim Tams are going to replace penguins and the UK will be better for it but the UK farmers don't think they're going to do well out of it. What about hormone fed Australian beef? And what about the economic arguments? Well revisit Ricardo look at the law of diminishing marginal returns and ask is the whole idea a little flawed or when it comes to agriculture was Ricardo right? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, welcome along. OK, so the UK has, in principle, agreed, to, uh, Steve, to this uh, first post-Brexit trade deal. I mean, there have been others, but they have been simple replacements to the trade deal that was already in place with the EU, so they just changed EU to UK, like uh, Japan, for example. But this is the first one the UK has beaten the EU to, because actually the EU is trying to negotiate with Australia as well. So uh, this is another of those... Is free trade a good thing, moments, Steve? Uh, This one, we're told, will eventually increase UK GDP by as much as... Now, wait for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 0.02%. It's going to... it's going to save uk households as much as 34 million pounds a year that is 50 pence per person that is 1 pence a week we will save as a result of this uh, of this trade deal so uh, i mean i mean first off there's there's no such thing as a free trade deal is there because they always come with many conditions attached and of course they have to have conditions attached because there is no level playing not field Yeah, well, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's just free trade. Well, actually, there's an interesting question. If we did just have free trade, if we had no tariffs, we had uh, open movement of goods, what would happen, do you think? Would it be a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Oh, uh, you'd see a fair One of the reasons for conditions on trade deals is normally, you know, in individual sectors and we're trying to protect their interests and not be completely exposed to the trade. But a lot of it mm. is also standards. So uh, if you let anybody ship anything they like to this country, then we'd be getting, as other countries, uh, like Australia would be doing doing it, of course, uh, whereas other countries started decarbonising their, their vehicle uh, fleet, you'd get cheap secondhand cars and they'd be imported by the billion Uh, into Australia and uh, increase the pollution levels there, uh, which doesn't seem to worry Australian politicians, but that would be the outcome. So it's one of the reasons you have conditions to maintain uh, acceptable standards for commodities, uh, and then that's a large part of the trade deals.
0: Well, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there is a very different uh, approach to standards between the UK and Australia. So, you wonder how this is going to work out. Because a lot of it is is touching on uh, on agriculture, uh, which is you know g- generally one of those areas uh, that you need to protect. Because, well, f- I mean, first of all, you need uh, obviously you need to ensure you've got food security, so you need to keep growing what you've got. But the interesting thing in the UK as well is, and this is where economics doesn't stand uh, stack up too well. UK farming is such a significant part of the landscape, so it's 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 part of the country's heritage. It's part of, part of
1: the environment. Uh, e- economics is not very good
0: at factoring in things like that, is
1: it? Well, this is where economics began in many ways because uh, what what formed the current uh, pattern of the English countryside was the enclosure movements, and these began when you started having capitalist uh, farming taking over the previous feudal farming. Uh, and with the feudal farming system, uh, the the basic story was that. Uh, there was a there was i think it was called a feudal mens uh, which was t- t- titularly owned by the by the king uh, and occupied by a lord and the lord uh, so the lord held the land on, on in, in behalf of the king and then the, the lord would then uh, be required to dole out certain amount of land to their his peasants to work on and then there'd be uh, land owned uh, in, in communal sense to some extent but also land by the land owned by the lord themselves and the, the peasants would produce what they needed uh, for subsistence, effectively, on their own plots of land. And then they would work collectively on the Lord's land, both for the Lord's need for food and also for any trade that the Lord would do with that food. And uh, when you think about the, the what that meant in terms of the pattern of the land holdings, the, one of the – I think it was the statute back in about the 15th or 14th century – uh, within these, these were the laws started to be rapacious that they trade to towards the peasants and then there'd be peasant revolts. There were plenty of times peasant decided to be genuinely revolting rather than just the, in, the, in the cartoon caricature. Uh, and as it, one of the laws was passed by one of the kings of England was that the minimum amount of land that a, a peasant uh, could be given on, on a feudal mens for their own use was four acres. Now, four acres is English land It's a pretty substantial, it's quite a lot. It means you can grow enough for your family. And the usual story was that uh, uh, looking at the, and again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm relating what other people have have researched and I've read. Uh, A normal life for a a feudal peasant involved two days of working for every one day partying. You'd you'd work two days and take one off. And that was the usual pattern. Uh, So you had small holdings everywhere. You had a, a, a large holding next to a, a feudal estate, and and then you had you now the next feudal estate and the next feudal estate and so on. And the real beginning of capitalism was uh, the, the uh, realization that there was money to be made in food, and uh, and and rather than just doing it for maintaining the feudal system, you were now having merchants and and feudal landlords turning into into, into agricultural uh, holdings uh, companies rather than. The feudal system, and they do the enclosures. So they basically enclose the land with. But the peasants have pushed the peasants off, and that's what formed the working class in the early days of the uh, of uh, England's industrialisation. You had all these people who were driven off the land, homeless. I mean, they were home, originally they were landless labourers, and then as the industrial process grew, they moved into work in the um, in the in, in, you know, the burgeoning factories of. Uh, 19th century, late late 17th and early late 18th and early 19th century uh, England, and that was the growth of uh, the original growth of capitalism. Uh, so what we've got is the remnants of the enclosure movement, uh, with with a tiny touch of what the feudal estates were about. It's a very different pattern to what it was when it was actually, um, in in some ways, better for the peasants than they got under under capitalism. But it's yeah, it's, it's certainly uh, the, the, that that pattern has become part of the you know. Uh, overall uh, landscape of the country and people you know the english garden they love that landscape and the french have a similar as you, but the french are actually much better hanging on to small Uh, small-scale sort of capitalist holdings.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 70% of the land in the UK is agriculture. Uh, Hmm. So here's the interesting thing, though. If you just look at it from the point of view of hard economics, it's it's 70% of the land. It only provides 1.5% of the jobs and accounts for just 0.6% of GDP. So if you were looking at the efficient land use, you probably wouldn't farm. You'd be saying, "Well, okay." There's, or you would be farming in a different way to try and increase that 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 efficiency. But um, you know, doesn't it? Isn't this where we get into this? You know, the whole argument. And I know how much you uh, you love the idea of uh, the the um, you know like the, the Ricardian argument that if we've got a limited amount of farmland, uh, or we can't get any more. Then importing from overseas is going to extend that farmland, in effect, because it reduces the impact of diminishing marginal returns. So, I mean, that would be the argument, wouldn't it? For um, you know, for, for an Australian trade agreement, for example, that if we needed to produce more because we've got a growing population, um, then uh, and we're constrained by local production. Uh, then we're going to reach a stage where extra demand is going to push prices up. That's the idea, I know, your favourite thing of diminishing marginal returns because we're going to run out mm-hmm. of land, uh, and therefore we get over that problem. That's that is that that is the base argument, isn't it, for, for free trade? You get over that problem of diminishing marginal returns because you can just extend your land, in effect, because you buy from overseas.
1: Yeah, well, and, and that's a good way to put it too because um, – that's when it comes to land. There is some sense that the idea of diminishing marginal productivity, because Ricardo's original frame of reference was his own theory of rent, yep. which said that uh, initially, when farming began, you would farm the best land, and there would be no rent payable. You'd be uh, you you'd, you know you. You'd, you'd, you'd pay rent on the differential as you, as you expand the population and you've got to use less good land, then that means the people who have got the, the good quality land, have a bargaining chip of those with the poorer quality land, and with that bargaining chip they can demand rent. So that was Ricardo's fundamental theory of rent, that's a large part of what turns up in Henry George's work as well. And, and that is actually saying what you've got is diminishing productivity of one of the inputs and the essential input of course to agriculture being land. So that's that's why in which way in which the idea of diminishing marginal productivity makes sense. What the Neoclassicals did to make a mockery of it was to apply that to the idea of inputs to production of a fixed uh, in their assumption of fixed uh, productivity. So they seem each, each worker, each unskilled worker is just as productive as the other unskilled worker. But you're adding more and more unskilled workers to the same stock of machines, which of course is not possible, but they've never stopped neoclassical economics. And you're adding um, more and more of these fixed in, in, in quality workers to uh, the same number of machines. That means you get a diminishing amount of output out of, out of each additional worker you add, and that's their explanation Which is completely wrong, Mm. Uh, but but that's of course the basis of their overall extension of this idea about uh, uh, international trade in aquaculture having benefits because you get uh, you get to to take uh, You know you you sell from your high marginal productivity uh, industries and buy their uh, and you and buy their high and you get a you get a trade-off in terms of uh, you know, they specialize in what they're good at, you specialize in what you're, you're good at and overall the, the physical amount produced has increased. And in the case of, of land, uh, you know, there's half an argument that that makes a bit of sense. Well, there's zero argument in favor of the manufacturing side of things because... Uh, the whole idea that you can add a variable number of workers to a particular machine is garbage. Yeah. In fact, I know one case where that happens and there's much lower productivity in the firm is trying to investigate A, why the Chinese use 16 workers when the machine only needs nine and why they're managing to produce 9 million Uh, units per year when when the the machine is designed to produce 14.
0: And the land argument obviously doesn't apply at all once you get outside agriculture because you can just build a new factory because as I said, 70% of the land at the moment is used for agriculture and if you can get more out of it from manufacturing then you would, so long as you're happy to uh, destroy the, the the countryside. So, uh, uh, so that's more an Australian thing than a UK. Thing, no? <laughs> well, there we are. You see. Well, I mean, in lots of ways, standards have gone in Australia, haven't they? They're less worried about standards. Uh, uh, standards.
1: You, well, yes. Yeah, so what do I mean, mean that means what that's mean, what's the amount of alcohol per beer?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's got there's got a minimum on that, have they? It's uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got to be over four percent, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean. You some yeah, let's call it English piss. Yeah. So, what? Let's look at those standards, though, because I mean, they' uh, this hormone fed beef, for example. Uh, there's obviously very large farms. It would be, and this is the big concern, isn't it? From uh, from farmers in the UK, are they going to get flooded with cheaper imports from Australia? Uh, and you you look at it and you think, well, almost certainly you would, even though, I mean, so on two counts, you know, the, the danger to what it could do to the UK uh, farm industry. Well, three counts, really, what that then means for food security. And thirdly, what it's doing for the planet, uh, shipping stuff
1: all the way around the, the planet uh, to try and get here. And that's what, to me, I mean, one of the... This is the Achilles heel that neoclassical economics assumes away, which is that it, it costs physical it costs physical resources and money and it generates pollution to ship goods from one location to another and we 're going into a future where we 're going to be forced, uh, whether we want it or not, to put less uh, load on the, on the biosphere by pumping less carbon dioxide and, and, and reduce and, and doing less damage to the um, environment than we already do. Uh, and it may well be that those uh, when, when you factor in those costs, uh, they overwhelm any potential price advantage out of a trade deal that's going to be shipping bananas from Australia to the UK. Mm. At the same time you've got to ship them you know, there are there are some commodity and this, this is one of the things which uh, makes a small amount of sense in trade deals. There are some goods which simply can't be produced uh, in the in, in one of the two countries and I think bananas are a good choice for England.
0: yeah yeah. Yeah,
1: but beef. But they, so, but they could go, they could buy them from uh, Egypt, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere closer, for sure, yeah. Mm. Uh, and um, look, I know, on the other side, of course, we still are getting uh, uh, tariff-free imports from the EU. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, maybe that means that the you know, Australian farmers won't be able to compete. So maybe it's uh, dead in the water unless we upset the EU so much that they start to put, uh, 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 put tariffs on. But, I mean, Ricardo's theory presumably would say that, look, if, if we were able to get it cheaper from the, uh, from Australia and from the EU, and um, then if, you know, if they, they can use their land more effectively or they've just got more of it so they can produce food cheaper, then we should let them do that. And I'm not sure what do we do? Do we close our farms and, and then use that land for something that we are, better at so do we set up silicon valley so silicon valley for example is i mean in the states that could be used as farmland but instead it's being used as campuses for the tech industry so same land much greater benefit to the economy maybe we should be doing more of that
1: well but it comes down to what are the gains from trade and uh, as i've said one of the, the big hole in the whole idea of gains from trade is the belief that you can easily reallocate resources from one industry to another inside a country, because the theory starts off by assuming, in fact, that there is no international transfer of labor or capital. Mm. Now that's garbage. We we know that that's you know massively contradicted by the real world. For a start, by the fact that a large large part of production is done by multinational corporations. You know, Ireland's output of um, of uh, m- Microsoft Windows is pretty impressive, so far as I understand. <laughs> um, you know, um, so you you and then what that means is the sales of uh, of Microsoft Windows from Ireland to the rest of the world don't mean the profits from that accrue to uh, Ireland. They get shipped back uh, electronically to uh, America hmm. and uh, and line Bill Gates's pockets and others rather than that of the Irish. And therefore, you can't say anymore whether the whether the physical increase in output that the theory argues happens actually ends up with an income benefit to the people in that country. So you know, right from the outset, the thing is, is shoddy. But as I've said, the main weakness throughout is the belief that you can move machinery from one sector to another without losing any productivity. Now, uh, Ricardo made this easy to do by simply ignoring in that little passage where he focuses on the example of Portugal and England exporting uh, uh, cloth and wine to each other, uh, he, he completely glosses over the need for machines to produce any output. And I might add that that, that obviously has been improved over time. So, for example, Paul Krugman got his, P- his Nobel Prize in economics for doing an economic geography model uh, of uh, the, some of the, the gains from trade with some limitations to that, where he assumed that all output was produced using labour alone. Give me a you know. so like. <laughs> uh, t- pa- pa- so perhaps he's living in caveman. Do not get a
0: paper. Perhaps he's living in caveman times. You know, he's he's doing everything with hand tools, and uh, we really haven't progressed
1: very far from that. Well, that sounds like New York to me, uh, the Tribeca district at least. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, this, so it, it's nonsense that the, the main gains. From anything, gains from investment, not gains from trade. And one of the fun things I've got to go back and find the original article because it's hard to find some of this older stuff material before. But Harry Johnson was one of the absolute proponents of the neoclassical theory of free trade, and you know, and it, it, a lot of the in, a lot of the theories which are still used today originate in in, in Harry Johnson's work, as well as a, a couple of I think they were Sir Swedish economist Hexler and Olin. Um, but Johnson tried to. Uh, make his case one day by uh, trying to estimate in, in theory and using economic data, of course, as well, what the absolute gains to trade were to be if you went from the, the global situation at the time back in the 1950s when tariffs were often of the order of 40 and 50 per cent to the point where they were zero, and everybody benefited from free trade. And what he found was that the using his own theory and his own uh, you know, parameters for his own models, I think he ended up with the the benefits of the going from the uh, to, to, you know, high tariff situation of the fifties to complete free trade was about one half or one percent of GDP. And he concluded that, uh, you know, this was equivalent to the normal gains from technological progress over about six months. Mm. So uh, the entire focus on trade deals rather than on investment is just nonsense interesting by economic theory.
0: Yeah, because, well, I mean, tariffs aren't that large now, are they? I mean, the the world uh, trade organization tariff on agricultural products is uh, average is 14 percent for meat products is 19 percent um mm. so, you, so you'd be thinking well okay in effect you know we could be we could be trading with a 14 percent uh impost uh with anyone anywhere in the world if we wanted to we don't need to because we've got free trade with the eu but if we if there was a more efficient thing we could do with that land that we're using for agriculture we would have already done it wouldn't we but the, the fact is, we haven't because there isn't because yeah. there aren't enough people to do. And as you're saying, um, you know, there's not the investment
1: there. Yeah, and like the because the, 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 you you have a I mean economic theory. Uh, is, is, a, is a world of numbers with the, with, uh, uh, it, with implicit numbers with no explicit numbers written down. So when you do a, uh, a typical neoclassical uh, course in economics, you'll have at some stage, I'll show you what's called the Edgeworth-Box Edgeworth diagram. And that's how they show the idea of gains from trade. That was the initial way of modelling it. And what you would have is uh, you draw one country with what they call... Um, I think if remember, they remember haven't looked for a long time so I might my might put my foot in my mouth here but they'd show the uh, the, the indifference curves the preferences that each this particular society had say between guns and butter so you've got guns on the vertical axis butter on the horizontal axis and you draw a curve which shows the combination of butter and guns that makes that particular society equally happy obviously America liked lots of guns and not very much butter and England likes lots of butter and not not quite so many guns yeah uh, and then that's why we solve disputes show- by chucking butter at each other yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah the butter wars <laughs> the, 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 the maybe you did have the pudding hurler, of, was it Battersea <laughs> the great Battersea, the, 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 pudding, the, the Battersea yeah, pudding hurler? We're going back to the yeah, goons yeah, okay. now,
0: aren't we? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> but but they, they, you then get a price line coming out of the. You, you then get a budget constraint coming out of it, which was uh, the the actual you know the relative price of the of butter versus guns would then determine whereabouts on that. Uh, which indifference curve, which was the highest one you reached you with know, the largest number of guns and butter, and, and that would be the price ratio for that country. And then you do exactly the same thing with the other country but flip it upside down so you form a box. And then what you have is two price lines uh, of two different slopes reflecting both the preferences of the country and their capacity for production. And the idea is that you would then have trade occurring uh, where the... Uh, in indifference curves were tangential to each other. The idea being that that particularly, when you when you draw these curves, you know the infinite number of curves going out, showing you know the higher curve shows a higher amount of utility from the guns and butters you're consuming. And where the two curves are tangential, that's the new price, and that new relative price gives you the uh, and a trading advantage for for producers in both countries. Now all that Based stuff on just is done two with products. curves. So true you, you, products, yeah. So then you've got to do... But, so then you but, you but no do, numbers. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then it's a yeah. overly
0: simplistic as well. I mean, then you've got to do... sure. Well, yeah. you got to do it, for, what, what it uh, for butter and nail clippers, and then nail yeah. clippers and guns, and then uh, guns to... Uh, socks
1: and then socks to butter, peas. Uh, <laughs> we can turn beans into peas, and now we're going to look at time bandits. Um, yeah, all, all and all this stuff is done without numbers. When you look at it, oh yeah, that's an advantage. You know, the slope is different. I can see the logical argument. Blah blah blah, hmm. and and then the empirical stuff. Uh, if, if you actually, even within the theories confluences that when Johnson tried to work out what the numbers might be, they were the order of, you know, one, three to six months, uh, you know, to- total, from total your total specialisation. Uh, gives you about three to six month worth of a- annual economic growth. Duh. Uh, but the thing is that the, don't, don't, don't don't let's not worry about the numerical side. The model looks beautiful and let's put the model into practice. And and this is where you get all this obsession with free trade deals out of economists. And also it suits politicians because they get to hold hands with each other in foreign locations. And it and, looks like they're doing show stuff. Prespe- exactly. Yeah. Show, show off respective shopping I, trolleys like he, that ridiculous photograph of uh, of Boris and and, uh, and Scummo. I was a Scummo. It's, it's not Scummo, is it? It's SCOMO. SIMO, isn't it? SCOMO, SCOMO, SCOMO. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, holding hands. How nice. I or, think you might have been Were right they touching the elbows? Time. I can't remember. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, and, and look, and it, it's impossible, isn't it? To, I wonder whether it's going to come off because the, it is impossible on on a number of levels. You can't have a, a free trade when you've got different standards. So last year, the government introduced the Agriculture Bill in the UK, which um, is sort of like the next step after all, all the support that was provided to farmers by the EU. So it stops direct payments to farmers based on their land and instead it mm-hmm. bases it on the subsidy is going to be based on output but also meeting environmental standards uh most of it seems yeah. at the the discretion of the secretary of State because everything since the uh, since brexit is falling in the hands of ministers rather than uh, than uh, than government at large um, but you can't have subsidies like this if you're engaged in free trade can you so that places the you know the danger that you are if you put everyone on level footing you go to the lowest common standard that's basically where you're headed. And
1: Australia rules yeah and and, well, it and, does. and that is yeah, yeah. And, and 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 that's the trouble that uh, that's why these things are so complicated and also why well, you've ended up having free trade being used to constrain the freedom of governments to make laws for their own countries so uh, you know it, it's it's been Frankenstein's monster for uh, in industrial uh, systems and agricultural systems around the world, uh, because all of a sudden, all the attempts they ha- make to control their own environment for the benefit of everybody—I mean, we don't want you—we know, don't want DDT in your drinking drinking water—but um, it is now quite possible for a company to sue uh, a country. Uh, because it prevents it selling DDT to that country. Uh, so, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're caught up in a hellhole where we've, we've actually basically, in in the, in the idea of free trade, we've handed over control to corporates who can just do what, what you know, who it can, it can lobby for whatever they want for their own benefit, uh, you know, which, which in... Neoclassical terms again is as letting corporations have power to use against the rest of us, which is not supposed to happen in the textbook.
0: Yeah, well, and th- this free trade deal can be agreed. Another, it's another deal that can be agreed uh, with. Uh, just it, it falls into the minister's remit; it doesn't have to go to Parliament, irrespective mm. of the impact it can have on the UK. This is one you know, nice little thing that was in the uh, Brexit uh, agreement, the Brexit law that was passed. That almost all of these decisions fall uh, in the hands of uh, of the the relevant minister and so one of those decisions that's been made clearly is because the big difference between uh farming in the uk and the farming in australia is uh, hormone injected beef it's legal in australia new zealand and the us and canada and south africa and japan but not in the eu or the uk uh mm-hmm. so with the uh, being out of the eu then presumably we are dropping that requirement um which means if we drop that requirement and start doing it here then we wouldn't be able to export to europe because of course they've still got that uh uh, that requirement so it just makes it a very uneven playing field i mean it's an absolute nightmare isn't it and and yet um you know the argument from australia australia is well you'd have to worry about uh hormone uh, fed uh, beef because they reckon 77 kilos of beef uh, that's how much you'd have to eat in one sitting to get the same estrogen hormone that's found in one egg that's their argument i mean they may be right but i mean it's it's a there's got to be a reason why we've not had hormone injected beef in the UK and now we're going to have it presumably because we're going to accept it from Australia and if we're you know and it's a, a big efficiency for for Australia to have it so we can't compete without it
1: yeah and therefore you again it's the lowest common denominator effect mmm yeah let me tell you about hormones
0: actually in beef because I did do a bit of research on this oh in, yeah in South Africa they say it can take three years for bovines to to reach slaughter weight with hormones, you can slaughter them at eighteen to twenty-four months old. So it's not quite uh, doubling the production, but that is uh, that is a major efficiency, isn't it? Which um, you know, the broader question is, of course, how much red meat should we be eating, and whether it's good for the planner But uh, the, the the introduction of hormones really just changes the whole dynamic of the industry.
1: Yeah, and uh, it changes our biology as well, which is one of the reasons that. And uh, what about antibiotics? Antibiotic uh, injection, also uh, legal in Australia and banned in the UK? I'm not sure on that, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, I mean, it all feels... That, that is where a large part of antibiotic resistance has come from over time, of course. We've excessive use of antibiotics for, um, uh, for, for enabling higher agricultural output... But the, effectively, that's what's generated the superbugs we're now coping with in our medical system, one of the things that has.
0: So is a better so, way, rather than going to individual countries and having these individual agreements, I mean, is the are we better off just with WTA rules across the board? Do we say, well, okay, we all need to protect our we, – we've all got the same issue, uh, that we've got different standards in agriculture, we need to protect our own industries – because it's part of our livelihood, part of our landscape, but also we need it for, for food security. Uh, I mean, should we just be forgetting about the idea of free trade and saying, well, let's let's all universally agree what is the optimum um, tariff that should be placed on various sectors and not have free trade? Uh, I mean, you know, should we actually be saying yes? Let's let's go about and um, you know these these photo opportunities could be the prime minister going to various countries tearing up free trade agreements that currently exist. <laughs>
1: Now, I don't think they're going to continue going up and signing them because it makes it look like they're doing something useful. Um, but the really useful thing would be promoting investment back at home. Mm. And that is one reason that countries have, like Japan and Korea and China... And Germany, at one point or two, have successfully industrialised using tariff policies that forced their manufacturers to produce domestically and then also forced them to industrialise and grow at a faster rate. This includes America. One of um, I've, I've yet to read it uh, fully. I've, I've just before I met Michael Hudson, he wrote he wrote this as his PhD thesis, but he called it America's protectionist takeoff. He said the industrial development of uh, the America began when America instituted tariffs to stop the importing of British. Um, uh, goods and particularly British, British manu- uh, manufacturing uh, equipment uh, and forced the local ma- uh, development of it and that was a major part of why America industrialised so rapidly and so successfully. So it's all an argument about whether this actually promotes growth over time and The neoclassical thing is let's just specialise, let's improve what we've got now and that will uh, automagically, as one of my computer programmer friends used to say, automagically increase the rate of investment. No, it doesn't. It quite possibly reduces the rate of investment.
0: Yeah. And yet we still have all those people alive in the 80s who were uh, the the fanboys and girls for uh, more boys, I suspect, for Margaret Thatcher, who, you know, you still meet at dinner parties from time to time who say, yes, she was doing exactly the right thing by closing down industries because they were inefficient. And if you can buy them cheaper from overseas, then you should, you know, talking about iron and steel. The the thing is, of course, Mm. in the 80s, uh, Britain closed down its iron and steel industry to, to import subsidized. Uh, iron and steel from overseas, a lot of it coming from Germany. Uh, so, yeah. so that argument doesn't really stack up. But if, if it wasn't subsidised from overseas, you know, have they got a point?
1: Um, no, they. Well, they, they have a minor point because I mean, like. There's obviously there's some things which you can't produce domestically, I and mean, i use bananas as an example for the UK. They'd, you could probably probably produce bananas in the Netherlands using greenhouses, knowing how hmm. innovative the Netherlands agriculture is. Um, but not in not not in the fields of the UK. Uh, and there's also sometimes technological developments occur, such as, for example, you know Tesla cars, and uh, you can't you can't produce those locally because you simply don't have the technology uh, to do it in the first place. So there are some things which, yes, have to be procured internationally. But if you again, if you look at the what actually causes growth over time. Uh, it's developing new industries out of old, by out of combining old ones, and that puts a premium on a diversified industrial structure, not a specialised one. So if we could reframe this stuff in terms of what actually works, which is a diversified industrial structure, and then bring it down to products which can't be produced in some countries and therefore you have to have trade, then you have a more realistic framing of trade's role in the economy overall. But the way it's put forward by neoclassicals, it's the be-all and end all it's the absolute beginning the absolute foundation of everything else and what you get ultimately everything including industrial policy is made subservient to trade policy and you therefore quite frequently get a lower level of investment a lower level of innovation coming out of it mm. for bugger Look, all gains even when you work it out with neoclassical logic well now the photo opportunity's
0: passed for my uh, for, you know for what it's worth i believe that this this trade agreement with the with australia won't happen I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to falter because of this lowering of standards that the, the British population is probably not going to be prepared to put up with. But we'll see. Look, next time, um, uh, another uh, topic that we have touched on from time to time, but we can explore in a bit more detail. Unions. Is the is mm-hmm. the economy missing out on not having powerful unions, and what effect is it having? So we'll do that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Good, day, mate. Okay, good. So that's it. Phil Dobby and Steve Keane back next week uh, for another podcast. Thanks for listening. See you then.